before we get started, a quick disclosure. Disclaimer. Disclaimer this time. Uh, this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing you hear is an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any investment. And with that, hello and welcome to the Rangely Capital Podcast. I'm Andrew Walker, Portfolio Manager at Rangely. And with me, as always, my co-host and Rangely's founder, Chris Demuth. It is Wednesday, February 22nd, and today we're going to talk about the aborted Kraft Heinz Unilever merger, and then we'll go to the mutual fund plunge that had Wall Street abuzz. Uh, so, Chris, let's start with Kraft Heinz, uh, Kraft Heinz Unilever. Uh, you know, 3G had a busy weekend. Literally, just last week, our last podcast, we did a podcast talking about 3G controlled uh, restaurant brands and how they had approached Popeyes la- uh, late last year walked away on pricing discipline, and it seemed like the, everyone was reporting the merger was dead. Surprise! Over the weekend, 3G reached back out, and uh, they they officially bought, or they officially entered a deal to buy Popeyes on Tuesday. But what we really want to talk about, that's only a $1.5 or so billion dollar deal. What we really want to talk about is the attempted $150 billion-ish deal between uh, Kraft Heinz and Unilever. Uh, late last week, news broke that Kraft Heinz had approached Unilever about a merger, uh, the stock market absolutely loved the news. Kraft Heinz shares were up 11% when the rumor broke. Unilever shares were up 15%. Uh, everyone thought, that, hey, this is the start of so- this is the start of an, an inevitable merger. Uh, but over the weekend, the companies actually came out and said, hey, we we've decided to go our separate ways and not merge. Uh, the market is probably thinking there's another shoe to drop. Shares have given up a little of those gains, but Unilever shares are still up 10% over their kind of unaffected price. Kraft Heinz shares are still up 7% over their unaffected price. Uh, under the UK rules, Kraft Heinz can't come back to Unilever for another six months. So they're probably not the near-term solution, though who knows what happens. Unilever could go back to them. Six months from now, Kraft Heinz could go back. But uh, I think there's a lot of things to talk about. Uh, Warren Buffett was clearly involved in this. 3G was clearly involved. Uh, I'll turn it over to you. Were you surprised by the move? Why do you think the deal talks broke? And what do you think's next for these guys? Um, one little thought about our role of analyzing and researching these. I think that the specifics around process are so frequently overstated as if these are forces of nature or laws or have some kind of moral precept and somebody says, I'm not looking or I am looking now. It's amazing to see something where Popeyes was reportedly doomed and then got done and this other one was reportedly getting done and then doomed. Um, So just these twists and turns can be kind of remarkable to follow and easy to overstate. Um, And I should say I have not been a hero or a villain on either of these uh, yet, although I have plenty of ability to uh, at least be one or the other at some point. I just haven't yet. Um, So I think that it would have been a terrific deal. Uh, I do get a little bit surprised when people in a big corporate transaction take one step without a very fully vetted second through 10th step where almost always the unsolicited inbound bid will have some standoffish reaction, which I don't take too seriously. I try to ignore kind of late stage convenient rhetoric from people entrenching themselves and assume they'll have it and have a reaction and a reaction to the reaction. But um, in this case, and I would give huge uh, uh, plaudits to the FT in particular for some excellent journalism, uh, about how this all came together and then came apart, I would say that uh, it was early stage. So this was this wasn't their plan to have this out in the public when it came out in the public on Friday. Clearly, number one and two, 
Buffett especially has a long-standing aversion to hostility, as it's called, uh, uh, unsolicited bids. This was intended to be an overture leading to a uh, consensual deal, which wasn't to happen. Yeah, and I, I can't help but wonder, look, Buffett hates hostile deals, and Unilever CEO, all the reporting says he did not want to sell. So there's one thing, this was going to be a little bit hostile, but... Kraft Heinz is a 3G-led company. 3G has gone a kind of aggressive on companies before. But I can't help but wonder, Unilever is a UK company. And under UK rules, uh, companies have to confirm when they're in merger talks. And uh, there was kind of some strange stock market rumors late last week that led to the FT calling up uh, Unilever and saying, hey, are you guys in merger talks? And they put out a press release that confirmed they were. And I can't help but wondering if that publicity itself, if this was a U.S. company that had a, issued this standard, we do not confirm or deny market rumors. We can't, we're, we're always evaluating strategic options. I think a deal might have happened if kind of the press and everything hadn't broken there. So I think a U.S. company, a U.S. Unilever would have been in, in late stage talks right now and we wouldn't have anything to talk about. I agree it was – I disagree that we wouldn't have anything to talk about. <laughs> We'd have something different, something different to talk about. about. Yeah. But I would say that uh, Unilever uh, spoke with the FT. FT got it out quickly during the day on Friday. That then triggers the UK takeover provision mm-hmm. that I have to say I am on, I am a pro-civil liberties purist on speech in all cases except for this one little caveat that I adore the UK takeover provisions that require when talks begin to have either decisive action in favor of an offer or a six-month cooling off period. I think all people on all topics should have the same rule. <laughs> Let's uh, come back to that later. But, you know, I, one thing I do want to talk about is Kraft Heinz, uh, I think it's surprising they went for Unilever. So Kraft Heinz, you know, they're known for Kraft mac and cheese yep. and Heinz ketchup. Unilever is generally known for body products, you know, consumer disposable products, that sort of stuff. Uh, Unilever is a big Procter & Gamble uh, competitor. Most people thought Kraft Heinz was going to go further into the food sector. You know, everybody was talking about General Mills, Mondelez, and Kellogg's as probably the next three targets for mm-hmm. Kraft Heinz. So it was surprising to see them shift into this sector. Were you a little bit surprised here? Do you think this is the direction Kraft Heinz is going to go in? Or do you think with Unilever dead, they're going to turn their attention back to food companies? Well, Unilever does have uh, Marmite. So in terms of... Uh, but that's small. And actually, the, the FT reporting did say their initial thought was Kraft Heinz just wanted to take their kind of Marmite division from them, for, for do a small deal, not buy the whole company. Uh, yeah, no. So I think uh, I, I, I've been very interested, probably most interested in this process, to see how little mean reversion there's been on both sides. So I think that there is a data point that is not killed by the killing off of this specific deal. And the data point on the Unilever side is there is now a rebuttable presumption. They've created this presumption. We think we can do better. Like, okay, fine. Well, we know what this offer was. Now they have some obligation and they did go and say, we're going to have a process to see if they can come up with something better. I'm dubious, but we'll see. And then on the Kraft Heinz side, we're ready, willing, and able to do a big deal. And so I think that that turns the topic very much to the three that you mentioned. Um, I think a food-on-food food deal makes more sense than a food-on-body product deal. Uh, but but uh, I, I have huge admiration for the 3G team, and I think they look at this and just say, 
We can cut a ton of costs out yeah, of this. We can cut a cut of toss. And, and I'm glad you said uh, the pressure is on Unilever because I think that's exactly right. You know, just last week or two weeks ago, we mentioned activism at Unilever's kind of big peer Procter and Gamble. And I can't help but think Unilever is is super ripe for some form of activism over there. You know, one of the things everyone was saying is Kraft Heinz is looking at Unilever and saying these guys have near the are kind of towards the bottom of margins across all consumer companies. And exactly what you're saying, they're looking at those margins saying, we can cut costs like crazy and get these margins up. So I think there's a lot of room for an activist to come in and say, hey, go re-engage in deal talks. Hey, you need to do a big cost-cutting program. Hey, does it make sense to have, as you said, the Marmite division? Does it make sense to have that with the rest of your products? I think they have Axe. They've got a lot of other uh, disposable products. Does it make sense to have those together? Do you need to look at selling some of your kind of non-core assets? So I, I have to think this is really ripe for some activism. Some of the sort of haughty uh, talk from Unilever a little bit reminded me of a famous earlier back and forth between American hedge fund manager at Third Point and a potential hire in Europe on the kind of American, and in this case, sure, Brazilian in the case of 3G, but American to European kind of cultural differences. They were saying that they uh, they, they found the zero-based budgeting uh, as uh, repellent, uh, and they thought that these guys were being aggressive with a smile, which I thought was kind of a cool phrase, actually. <laughs> I think I'd like to be aggressive with a smile. But uh, they, um, but to me, uh, their, their uh, uh, dislike of uh, frugality, I think, shows part of the problem. The real genius of 3D, we were talking before this podcast about uh, cost containment uh, and zero-based budgeting, is that people look at them and say, gosh, if we got rid of the worst 10% of people, if we got rid of the worst 10% of products, if we cut from a division, how much worse will it be? Will it be, maybe it will be 15% worse and it won't work. Maybe it'll only be 5% worse and it'll be good. What 3G tends to find is it's better, is Mm -hmm. that great people prefer to work in an environment without the worst people. Yeah, and, and, um, and it's crazy how quickly the improvements come, too. I, I, I can't remember the exact numbers, but I believe Heinz, when they bought Heinz, their operating margin was something like 15% the year before they bought them. They bought them. They, they cut a lot of uh, kind of these small, unprofitable brands, fired a lot of people, and operating margins were 28% like one year later or something. I mean, it was just an insane amount of cost cutting, and it's just crazy how big it is. Real quick, before we turn over to the Catalyst Fund, I just want to talk... I think Warren Buffett's fingers, you know, Warren Buffett is on the board of Kraft Heinz. I think Warren Buffett's fingers were all over, particularly how they backed off once it became clear Unilever wasn't going to sell unless they went hostile. And this was all through the press. I don't know if you want to talk at all about Warren Buffett's role here. Or... Well, uh, you know, he talks about he wants to take his elephant gun out. Elephant guns have two barrels. So he <laughs> has another shot here. I think that they will change directions. I think that they had something to offer that was specific, that made sense to him. And I think he's very, very willing to not be outmaneuvered by financial advisors to always be pro-deal, that he's happy to uh, step back. And he does use advisors from time to time, but usually just a, a small roster of people he's happy to think for himself. And so, no, I think that he was very involved in this. I think he'll be very involved in their next step. And boy, do I bet they're going to do something soon. 
Perfect, perfect. All right, so let's turn over to the Catalyst Fund. So last week there was all these uh, articles in the Wall Street Journal, uh, and it, it, the quotes were kind of Wall Street was a buzz with talks of the Catalyst Hedge, the Catalyst Hedged Futures Strategy Fund, uh, and this is a fund that's designed and again quotes to seek capital preservation in all markets. Uh, and a big piece of their strategy was really using options to enhance return and protect downside. And I'm going to simplify it a bit, but the basics were the funds structured their options so that if the markets took a move down, the options would kind of hedge their move down and maybe even let them profit from a move down. If the markets did a slow climb up, they'd be selling calls against it, which would allow them to kind of profit from the slow, slow climb up. The big risk they were taking was if the market quickly ran up, they would be in trouble. Markets have quickly run up since Donald Trump was elected elected and uh, the fund really saw losses start to accelerate last week as these kind of short-term out-of-the-money options that they had sold really turned against them quickly. Uh, The fund was down 15% last week, causing it to unwind a lot of its money-losing bets. And what had Wall Street really abuzz was a lot of people were saying, are they unwinding these positions so quickly that they're helping to actually fuel the S&P's rally up? And there was a lot of back and forth. No, they're only a $5 billion fund and the S&P 500 is like an $11 trillion trillion worth of market cap. There's no way they could do it. Other people were saying, you know, options, leverage, buying real quickly. They actually really could be fueling this. So we can go a lot of places here. I'll turn it over to you. Uh, Yeah, seeking capital preservation in all markets, I think, is a perfect uh, goal. Doing so by being leveraged short gamma, I think they they were in a position that uh, if they truly had to unwind, maybe they just kind of changed their thesis. That's fine. And I know a number of funds that were bearish going into the Trump election that changed their view. You know, you listen to Prem Watsa, for example, at Fairfax Holdings. They were very short. He recently and painfully unwound a lot of their short exposure. But it was a view. It's unclear here that they changed their thesis. If they really had to do this, they must have been using terribly uh, a lot of leverage. Yeah, I think what's interesting is they. it did not say they were specifically kind of short Trump. They were cautious, but it didn't say they were specifically short Trump. It was really that they were short gamma and their strategy ran against them and it, they were just bleeding money and chose to uh, kind of unwind and cover all these positions. Now, in fairness to them, if anybody had been investing from the beginning, they still have quite a great record. And, and that's actually something I wanted to talk to you about. So, you know, if you look at the 10-year record of this fund or the sense inception record, it's actually still a pretty good mm-hmm. record. I believe it's outperformed the S&P 500 by even after these big losses by like 2 or 3% sense inception mm-hmm. before these losses would even better. But, you know, this is one of those things where I think you kind of saw the crack in the strategy, right? Mm -hmm. The strategy was exposed to massive losses if the stock market ran up quickly. So hindsight hindsight bias says, oh gosh, these guys were great. But you don't realize that they were exposed to this massive risk where if the S&P 500 had run up just a little quicker, like it wouldn't have been down 15%. This would have been a, the fund is a complete zero, everything's wiped out, right? So I, I do, they have a great track record, kudos to them. But I do wonder if their great track record was kind of based on they took this one huge existential risk that just never came over the past 10 years. Does that make sense? It, it makes all the sense in the world. I think it is kind of revealing about what was being done in terms of the statistics. Because, right, you, you'd say, like, I am doing something that makes sense net of the reasonably likely outcomes, including unusual ones, yeah. you know, if you want to be invested for the long term, versus I am 
selling insurance that just hasn't uh, hasn't netted out yet. Um, and in this case, um, say two things. One, there can be a funny mismatch on fund managers that have these kind of devastating periods, which is there's this big percentage versus dollars mismatch where you gain assets over time. So people who've been hurt more quickly are generally going to have weaker hands than people who are with you the whole time. Um, and then secondly, I'd say there is a risk that the last six months or year of civilization as we know it are a melt up, not melt down in terms of nominal dollar equity hyperinflation. Yep, yep. Um, I think that we could be doomed and the S&P could double several times yep. in the process. Um, and I think that's wholly consistent. And I think if we're doomed under those circumstances, then this fund is really, really doomed. <laughs> yeah, you know, I just keep thinking like, it's interesting to think most people think of downside as, you know, equities drop 80, 90% and all your funds just go bankrupt even if they're using like a modest amount of leverage or they were a little too exposed to cyclicals or something. But it is interesting to think like this fund and some other funds could be exposed the other way where equities just pure melt up and all of them are getting margin calls left and right because of they're selling these far out of the money options. You know, I just come back to Warren Buffett said, you never know who's uh, swimming naked until the tide goes out. And it seems like these guys might have been swimming naked by taking on this risk that just hadn't delivered for 10 years and finally delivered and you kind of see the flaws in the strategy. I'll let you have the last word. Um, you know, funds that are designed to be protection, if their structure isn't quite right, they might not make it all the way, which also gives you the interesting possibility as somebody who wants to protect themselves that they can pick up this protection later, better, cheaper, even on the way to it being needed. Uh, you know, I think that it's like a uh, guy who is selling a plywood heading into a storm, but he can't quite make it. So he needs to sell his plywood before. Uh, and uh, so anyways. Well, you know, and I, I'm going to have the last word. Actually. Okay. I think it also shows like, you know, per, there are a lot of these complex strategies to protect yourself in uh, in the stock market with using complex derivative, complex derivatives, complex option strategies, and everything. And it shows, like, in general, you can't get something for nothing. There's generally a flaw to these things, mm -hmm. and it, you know, something unexpected always happens in the finance market. And when it happens, your protection oftentimes kills you not not just costs you money but kills you uh, i'm gonna take the last word there if that's okay very good perfect so that's all the time we have for today uh before we sign off just a quick reminder if you like this podcast the best way to get more of them is to recommend us to a friend you know getting more uh listeners is really what helps keep this podcast going chris uh we mentioned a lot of stocks i'm not long any of them i don't know if you're long any I don't maybe think berkshire so. i think oh berkshire, long, berkshire. Uh, berkshire.